Hi, and welcome to Prevent This, a podcast of your choice, where we cover everything substance abuse related from prevention to treatment to recovery and everything in between. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of a doctor or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding mental health, addiction, or substance abuse. Hello, hello, and thank you for joining us today on Prevent This, a podcast of your choice for episode number 43. Today we are talking about alcohol, specifically preventing heavy alcohol use through brief interventions with young adults. So today we are joined by our guest speaker, Dr. Eric Peterson, who is going to focus on describing both the theory and research supporting the use of brief alcohol interventions with young adults. Dr. Peterson is going to discuss how brief interventions have been successful in preventing the escalation of heavy drinking patterns in young adult groups with a particular emphasis on college student drinking. He will describe several components of these interventions, such as personalized normative feedback and protective behavioral strategies, and he will discuss how these components have been used outside of in-person formats to reach young adults using online and mobile phone-based programs. Lastly, he will present data demonstrating the unique risks associated with the popular drinking practice known as pre-gaming, where young people drink heavily within brief periods of time and share details about a randomized control trial of an online intervention aimed at preventing heavy pre-gaming behavior among college students. Dr. Peterson is an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral services in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. His research interests are primarily in the areas of young adult and adolescent alcohol use and co-occurring mental disorders. Dr. Peterson has received funding to develop brief online interventions to reduce alcohol misuse among young adult populations, such as college students and recently discharged veterans. He is interested in finding ways to target co-occurring post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders among young adults, as well as in using internet-based methods to help reduce alcohol misuse and promote treatment engagement among non-treatment-seeking young adults. He is an adjunct behavioral scientist at the RAND Corporation and is serving as the director of Project ALERT, which is a school-based drug prevention program for middle school youth developed at RAND. Dr. Peterson received his Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Washington in 2012. He joined the faculty at USC in 2020 after working full-time as a behavioral scientist at RAND from 2012 to 2020. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Dr. Eric Peterson. Well, thanks for having me, everybody. Uh, Just so you know who I am, I'm in the um, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, which is in Los Angeles. Uh, I've been here for about two years, started right before the pandemic. And prior to that, for about seven years, I was at the RAND Corporation, which is a nonprofit research organization based out of Santa Monica, um, doing research with young adults. And I'm going to share some of that research with you today, um, as well as go through um, a bunch of other topics. 
So uh, I just wanted to give some acknowledgements before I go through this is kind of a stock slide, but also there's uh, our website here if you want to check us out. It's a Google site uh, host at USC. Our lab is called the Pearl, which is a prevention, early intervention, and addictions recovery lab. We've got a lot of people that, that work with us here at USC, but also at uh, University of Washington, uh, RAND, Loyola Marymount University, which is also out here. Um, and I do want to acknowledge some of the funding that I received from the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, these are some, some grant findings that I'll, that I'll share later on. So the talk today is really focused on alcohol use. Uh, I will get into a little bit about some other substances, but um, I do want to go through quite a bit about young adults. And I'm really going to focus more on college students because that's where a lot of our research has been. Um, but there's more and more research coming out now that's showing what we do with college students can also work for other young adults as well. Um, I'll talk about these brief intervention approaches that have been very successful with young adults. Um, and then I'll move into some uh, information about pre-gaming drinking, which some of you may have, have heard of, but I'll define and talk about a study that we have that's geared towards that. So um, specifically for college students, we are seeing that the rates of substance use among college students, they have remain pretty steady over the past 20 years. So this top blue line is um, any alcohol use in the past 30 days. And this orange line is binge drinking alcohol use in the past 30 days. And binge drinking is drinking about, or drinking five drinks if you are uh, a male and drinking four drinks in a row if you are a female. Um, and so you see, you know, starting around 2000 or so is about 70% that we're drinking in the past 30 days. It does look like there's a little bit of a dip between 2019 and 2020. We're seeing this in a lot of our research now that, especially for college students, I think because they were home and um, didn't have access to uh, bars for, you know, a good chunk of the year there, weren't able to, to drink as heavily, but still like around the same level. So you see it's about... Um, uh, you'll see, you know, it's about seven, between 60 and 70 percent drinking and about 40 or, or two out of five students that are engaging in binge drinking. I'll just put up two more here just so you can see the other more prevalent uh, substances that, that college students and young adults engage in. Um, you see uh, cannabis use, which is around 20 percent or one in five students. And then you also see um, some illicit drug use under about 10 percent for students. You will you see that college students and young non-college young adults use substances around the same level. There's some some key differences, but for the most part, um, engaging in substance use about the same levels. So heavy drinking during college can lead to negative consequences. So things like academic problems, missing classes, poor school performance, uh, possibly you know withdrawal from courses and dropping out health problems, alcohol use disorder and other alcohol related problems, sleep issues, mental health disorders, depression, anxiety. There are these acute risks. So impaired driving, unsafe sex behavior, getting into fights, sexual assaults, physical assaults, um, also suicide attempts, unintentional injuries, overdoses and, and deaths. There's also secondhand consequences. So even students who don't drink, they can experience secondhand effects. So this can be disrupted study and sleep when your roommate comes in and, and um, is intoxicated or being the victim of an alcohol-related physical or sexual assault. There's also consequences for schools, so higher costs for healthcare and security, campus vandalism, damage to schools' reputations, or and those costs that are related to students dropping out. 
So in reaction to heavy student drinking on campuses, um, campuses have Im implemented some efforts to try to address college drinking. And so there are these environmental level strategies such as enforcing underage drinking laws. If you're under 21 on campus, you're caught drinking, you get in trouble, you have to go to a mandated class or you lose priority points for your housing, whatever it's gonna be. Um, restricting alcohol at on-campus events, um, which can also be, or establishing alcohol-free campuses. So no drinking in the dorms, no drinking at all on campus. There's also these amnesty policies where um, if you are somebody who helps, so th these are also known as Good Samaritan policies. So if you help somebody out who's highly intoxicated that you're worried about, a lot of times students or young people are afraid to call somebody because they're afraid they're also going to get in trouble because, or get their friend in trouble because they might be you know, intoxicated as well. Um, so having some amnesty policies related to that, like you won't get in trouble if you call and help your friend, uh, or maybe they won't get in, in trouble. Then there are these individual level strategies, um, and the ones I'm really going to talk about today are these brief interventions, but really briefly screening and referral. So this is, you know, if you're finding that someone's drinking heavily, either, you know, they could come to student health for a mental health issue, or maybe they, they get in trouble drinking in the dorms, um, or you could just do a campus-wide screener, um, referring them to, to appropriate treatments. And there's really a solid research base about the importance of screening on campus and how that uh, initiating referrals to treatment and recovery services can be really helpful. Identifying students who need help early on is really essential to prevent substance use problems and sustain patterns of use so they don't become chronic or more difficult to treat down the line. So and often this occurs within mental health clinics but also within student affairs. Um, so students who get in trouble might be mandated to receive uh, some brief programs or more, um, more lengthy programs uh, for some, you know, just the consequence of getting into trouble could be something that leads them to change, but we've seen that doesn't often actually happen. Um, then there's primary prevention, which is educating students about the risks related to drinking. These can be campus-wide campaigns, such as, you know, posters up in around campus that talk about the harms of alcohol. Um, these target students, the student population as a whole. It's going to be a, you know, very brief program that's delivered during orientation to all students. Then you get into more targeted or selected prevention approaches where, or intervention approaches where you are targeting students that um, actually need some assistance in reducing their drinking. And so there are these multi-component brief interventions where you're delivering approaches to students, you know, after they have requested help or after they've gotten in trouble, they're a bit lengthier. They um, often, they contain multiple components and they can be several sessions. There's also um, single component interventions where you can isolate the component or the components of these multi component interventions that are really the, the mechanisms of change and deliver, deliver just that. And this is a great resource. I put this uh, up here at collegedrinkingprevention.gov. The college aim uh, planning, um, planning guide is, uh, is really helpful if you're interested in reading more about the, the tiers of, of programs that are out there, both at the environmental level and at individual level, and then the evidence that's supporting those. So that individual level interventions, and we're also gonna be talking about these brief interventions, they're based on harm reduction strategies and motivational interviewing principles. And so harm reduction, it does recognize that abstinence might not be for everyone, but it does note that you know moderate or responsible use could be okay for some if they're not hurting themselves or others. And so even with college students, there are many college students that could really benefit from abstinence-based approaches and so this would be 
um, AA or um, committing to, to not drink anymore. For many students, that's not even an option for them. They just won't even consider it. Drinking is a part of the college environment. So, so in the 90s, um, Alan Marlat developed an approach that was really geared towards this harm reduction approach. So how can we get students to drink in a safer way where they're not harming themselves or others? Um, ultimate goal might be to get them to abstinence, um, but really we wanna get them to reduce or actually eliminate these negative consequences that they're experiencing. Moving them in any step towards reduced risk is gonna be a, a step in the right direction. Um, and so this was actually pretty controversial at first because a lot of times you're talking with students or young people that aren't even 21 yet, um, helping them understand that, you know, the decision to drink is actually their own. No one's telling them whether to, to not drink or not. Um, and that can actually reduce quite a bit of resistance. And I'll, and I'll go through some of the theory um, related to this. And so harm reduction approaches, but also based in motivational interviewing, which I know many of you know quite a bit about, and we'll just get into a little bit. And that stems from this trans-theoretical model or the stages of change model. And so let me go through the model real quick. Um, this is, you'll see there's, there's multiple um, stages here. You can enter and exit stages of change whenever you're attempting to engage in behavior change. Um, Pre-contemplation is, is usually the first stage where people are thinking they don't need to make a change. And so related to drinking, thinking I don't really need to stop drinking, my drinking isn't that bad. Everybody on campus drinks, my roommates drink. Um, moving in, then into contemplation, which is considering some change. Maybe I could drink a little bit less on weekends, for example. That then moves into the preparation stage, which is where you're um, actually making a plan for, say, drinking less. So I'm going to drink less on the weekends. Into that action phase, now I've made a plan. I'm actually going to implement that plan. I'm going, I'm not going to go to this party because I know a lot of people are going to be drinking there, and it's going to be really hard for me not to not to drink when I'm there, which then leads to maintenance, which is making commitment and really just continuing this action phase. So told my friends that I need to drink less so they can help me out, can lead to stable behavior. It can lead to this stage that they call relapse, which in harm reduction, we refer more to a, a lapse. So this is a, you know, it's basically a slip. So you're on this stage, you've gone through all the stages, you're in maintenance, and now you have a little lapse. Well, now maybe you can just jump right back on. Maybe you jump back into pre-contemplation where you're starting to think about change again, or maybe you jump back into the action phase. Um, another, just to give you another example related to you know, a health behavior. So considering uh, losing weight or exercising more, it doesn't always have to be, it's not always applied to risky behaviors, but how do you uh, change a, a behavior for the better? Um, so in pre-contemplation, you know, not thinking about it at all, not thinking about losing weight, not thinking about exercising, contemplation, actually thinking about, you know, getting a gym membership, maybe even looking into a few options, which would then lead you into preparation, um, going out, you know, getting a gym membership, having a workout plan, action, moving into actually going to the gym, and then maintenance, which would be, you know, having a workout routine, going three times a week, having a friend you go with that you're committed to. Before I get into the pre-contemplation and contemplation a little bit more, I wanna talk about the, the action and the maintenance phases, because um, there are a lot of good approaches for individuals in these phases. It's helpful when you're talking with young people to recognize what stage of change they're in, because there's many different approaches. If you have somebody's in the action phase, great. You can use relapse prevention, CBT, you know, a lot of different um, 
AA, the AA model, whatever um, intervention is going to be helpful for that person who's already kind of committed to a change. So this person is ready to make a change. Um, they want to drink less. They want to stop drinking shots. They want to stop drinking altogether, whatever it is. They don't want to smoke anymore. Um, they're throwing out their cigarettes. They're pouring their alcohol down the drain. All the things that um, come along with making a plan and carrying it out. Somebody who's in maintenance definitely needs some support, need a lot of self um, efficacy. So the belief that they can make this change and also the belief that they can sustain this change and they might need some peers to help them or a counselor or a therapist or whoever, parents to help them out. It's maintaining that action phase, um, continuing that action plan. Uh, it's also important to recognize, you know, this relapse phase, as I mentioned, you know, can occur. Oops. Um, many times it, it's, it's almost something that you might want to plan for or expect. And there's this thing called the abstinence violation effect where sometimes people might fall off this stage because they've been in maintenance for so long or action for so long. And now they have a beer, they say it's a slip, and then they decide, forget, it, I'm just going to have a few more. And then I'm just going to just drink all weekend because I violated my, my abstinence. I've already, I've already broken it. Um, with harm reduction, we say, just jump right back on. You had a beer. Okay, no big deal. It was a slip jump back into whatever stage you can. Okay. For contemplation and pre-contemplation um, to, an, to an extent, and the person is, is not ready for change. So we need a strategy to help move these people into action. And most young adults, college students are in this phase and not considering a change. They're actually resistant to change. They don't like being told what to do. So you tell them you can't drink on campus, they're gonna find a way to drink. They're gonna find a way to sneak it in, go off campus, whatever it's gonna be. Um, these people might also think like, what's the point of change? I've already, you know, drank so much or, or I've already um, smoked so many cigarettes. I've already destroyed my lungs. So there's no need to change now. Contemplation, the person is starting to acknowledge that they have a problem. So can we move them from pre-contemplation into this contemplation area to then move them into preparation where they can begin to make a serious decision to change things in the near future? So it's a smoker, plans to quit on New Year's Day. Um, not really sure how they're going to do it, help them create an action plan. All right, so one of the ways that we do that um, to move them from pre-contemplation or contemplation into this action phase is through motivational interviewing techniques. So motivational interviewing, it's, it's a person-centered directive method of communication for enhancing intrinsic motivation to change by exploring and resolving ambivalence. And we do this through, through five principles. The first is expressing empathy and expressing empathy through reflective listening. So this can be through open-ended questions or affirmations, really meeting the person where they're at and showing that you understand them. Developing discrepancy is the second principle. And this is, um, you know, talking with the, with the individual about how the problem behavior is in conflict with their important values. Um, you're not telling them how to change, but you're using the questions to help them come up with the arguments for change. And so it's, you know, a lot of times in, in therapy, you have this great idea and you're talking to them and you've suggested and several sessions later, they come up with the idea themselves. You've planted the seed. This is exactly what you want to happen. Um, so helping them kind of discover what the, um, the reason for change would be. You want to avoid arguing with the individual and also roll with their resistance. Just let resistance go, expect it and adjust to it. Um, and supporting self-efficacy, which is helping them believe that they can make a change. And this really starts with the provider, the counselor, the uh, therapist, believing that the person can make a change. 
And I think it's great. A lot of us that work with individuals that struggle with substance use um, do believe that these people, um, that people can change, um, even if it takes uh, multiple efforts. In terms of the spirit of MI, it's very collaborative. It's, there's a focus on the partnership. MI, they say MI is done for and not with the person. I'm sorry, it's done for and with the person. Um, there's acceptance, so helping uh, value one's inherent worth and also expressing accurate empathy. So not just repeating back what people are saying, but actively listening and understanding the person's perspective and being able to, um, being able to reiterate to that to them. Honoring and respecting each person's uh, autonomy to make their own decision. Um, and also affirmation, so acknowledging one's personal strengths and efforts. Compassion is also key. So, you know, underlying component that draws people into these helping professions is that we have compassion for people. So using that, um, having a deliberate commitment to pursue the welfare and the best interests of the person that you're talking with. Motivational interviewing is, is not persuading people to make a change or telling them what to do. It can, can be coming up with some suggestions for change, but helping them reach the, the um, the reasons for change on their own. It's also not just reminding them about all the bad things that, has hap that have happened to them because of their problem behavior. So, you know, listing out all the problems of drinking. So you've gotten all these hangovers and you've damaged all your relationships and you've been in a car crash and you have all these memory blackouts. I mean, that's clearly not enough for just knowing that stuff is not enough for this person to, to have made the change because they know that stuff, they've lived through it. So um, talking through what they, the kind of trying to find the hook that's gonna then make them, them change. All right, why use motivational interviewing with young adults? It's developmentally appropriate. It helps them feel comfortable sharing. Um, young adults are really, they're used to being told what to do all the way back from you know, adolescence. And motivational interviewing lets them take the driver's seat. It really gives them a chance to think and act independently. Some people, some young people see risky behavior as just you know, a part of being a young adult. Um, and they just don't, will never see their behavior as problematic um, just on their own. So helping them, them get to that and see that um, there can be some, some change. Um, it was developed as an individual therapeutic approach and it's been adapted now to be delivered in, in group formats and also in standalone formats. It's often called motivational enhancement treatments or motivational intervention informed care or MET informed interventions. And, um, the one for the specific one for college students that I'll talk about is um, is MI, but it's in a, a group format, and I'll talk about how we've moved it over to some um, online formats as well. This is a really complicated slide, but it's just to show you that um, motivational interviewing has been really well studied. Uh, this is a a study on uh, the, it's a, a systematic review of reviews, so it's a, not 104 studies, it's 104 review papers that were then reviewed and put into this 2018 paper on the effectiveness of MI on adult behavior change in health and social care settings. So really, just within related to health and um, health behaviors, and so it's been done in many areas: prevention of unhealthy behavior, smoking, substance use, mostly in the area of alcohol, but also for those with substance use disorders and co-occurring mental health disorders like depression and anxiety, gambling behaviors, and um, also in promotion of healthy behaviors. So brushing and flossing, uh, diet and exercise, weight management, and also adherence to medications. Uh, it's been helpful for those with multiple health problems. So addressing two things at once, like substance use behaviors and increasing exercise. It's been um, delivered in multiple formats, primary care, emergency departments. It's moving more into standalone approaches on the computer or over the internet. But 
you know, it's not a slam dunk and nothing is, but it does have a lot of evidence behind it. It has the best evidence for alcohol use and in particular binge drinking or heavy drinking and increasing exercises the, the areas where it's strongest. Also in terms of the, you know, population, the best evidence is for young people, for young adults. Um, and these brief interventions typically have short to medium effects or small effect sizes, which is also important to note. So why use brief interventions with, with young adults? Early prevention, this is an area that is, um, is really the basis of our lab here at USC is, you know, if we can prevent, um, it's, you know, prevention can be seen as, you know, with adolescents, for example, just, you know, having them never start substance use or never initiate substance use. We do know that, you know, the earlier you initiate substance use, kind of the worse off your outcomes are going to be as you get older in terms of substance use, mental health, um, social and um, legal and all, all kinds of consequences you can experience into later adulthood. So if we can delay initiation of use as long as possible, that's really key. With college students or young adults, they probably, many of them as you just saw, you know, 70, 80% of them had already initiated at least some substance use. So, but can we deliver this early prevention to help delay this transition or actually prevent this transition into more chronic and heavy problematic use? So for college students, can we limit it to just this you know, a couple of year period where you're not going to then develop these chronic heavy patterns of substance use that are going to get you into a lot of trouble later on. Um, it's helping to plant the seed for them. So you can deliver brief intervention, you know, in one session or two sessions, and there might be something that just sticks with the person. And maybe they don't change that day or have these massive dips in their substance use right away. But there's something that sticks with them or they notice something that you said later on while they're out there um, and then decide to make a change. So helping kind of foster that ability to, to make their own change. It can be cost effective. You know, one-on-one -on -one treatments um, can be really lengthy. Um, and so brief interventions are, can be cost effective because they're so brief. You can do this in many different settings. You can do this, you know, doctor, nurse, counselor, social worker, psychologist, whoever can do this in primary care, emergency departments online, over mobile phones, um, and it's also evidence-based. So there are, you know, with brief interventions, we do see small effects. So what that means is there's, it, it works, but it works kind of more in the short term, and it works at, a, at a, a lower level than you might see with more intensive treatments or people. And so while if you're, if you're seeing patients in a, a clinic and you're, and you're able to see them, you know, every day for a month, you know, giving them like, a brief intervention once while they're there might not be so great. You're not really going to see a lot of change, but brief interventions are nice because you can really hit a lot of people all at once. You can do these in group. You can do these five you know, to 10 minute interventions in the emergency room when somebody comes in because they had alcohol poisoning that day. So you target a large number of people. And then from a public health point of view, those small effects can really be beneficial on a broader scale. I'm gonna talk a little bit about the specifics of the basics program now. So brief interventions for, uh, for young adults and basics was particularly geared towards college students, although there's some evidence to suggest it works with other young adults as well. And we've used it outside of college student samples with young adult veterans as well. And I've seen that it's, it can be very helpful. Um, it has 
a lot of different components and I'll go through um, some of the key ones here. Um, psychoeducation, correction of misperceived norms, challenging their expectancies about what alcohol is going to do, protective behavioral strategies or those things you can do before, during, after, or instead of drinking to help reduce some of the consequences that you might be experiencing, increasing that motivation and readiness to change, balancing the pros and cons and, and building it. That's um, self-efficacy and um, monitoring your behavior. So go through some of the, the pieces here that we, that we do in, in basics. At the, the very basic level, um, you're giving some psychoeducation. And psychoeducation can actually be really helpful. Um, there's some some research to suggest that just telling people facts about alcohol use and how it works on your body, um, if you do that alone, not going to be super helpful. Be super, it would be helpful for some people, but overall, kind of have to enhance it with something else. But there is a very important place for psychoeducation in some of these multi-component brief interventions. And so really at the, at the lowest level, just teaching individuals what is a drink. I mean, a lot of young people or adults don't really understand how much they're actually drinking, and especially now with all these different products and knowing what the APV level is or the um, percentage of alcohol in that drink. Um, you know, you have a can of beer is usually the one we usually go back to. Most students understand that. A can of Coors, Coors Light, I mean, they're usually around 5% alcohol, 4 to 5% alcohol, and that's a 12-ounce beer. That's what a can looks like. A bottle of beer is a 12-ounce beer. Um, it's also a 10 ounce wine cooler. So wine cooler is kind of an outdated term now, but the, we, it can also be like um, a hard seltzer, which are very popular right now. Usually they have a little bit more alcohol, but there's so many out there now. Some of them have less, some of them have 3%, some of them have 5% within the can. Um, but knowing, having the ability to actually look at the can and see what you're drinking. So picking up a can and saying, oh, this has uh, you know 10% alcohol in it. This is a... Um, you know, cut water, Mai Tai cans, 12 ounces, but it's got 12% or 10% alcohol in it. Well, I know that if I drink this, it's actually like the same as drinking two beers, two 12 ounce beers at 5% alcohol. And just that alone can really help people understand how much they're drinking. And then this leads into monitoring too. So knowing that, okay, I drank that Mai Tai cut water um, and recognizing that that's two, that's not just one. And I only wanted to have four or five tonight and now I've already got two under my belt with just this one can. It can also help me make informed decisions about what to drink. So maybe I won't drink that. Maybe I'll drink half of that or I'll just drink beer instead because I can drink more of them with less alcohol. Um, glass of wine is, is about a four to five ounce glass of wine, depending on who's defining it. But this is about half of a glass of your standard glass of wine. And then in terms of uh, alcohol or liquor, it's... Uh, about a one to a one and a quarter ounce shot. Most shot glasses are about one and a quarter ounce, so fill to the top. There are differences between vodkas and and whiskeys and other and different types of alcohol, but for the most part, about a shot of liquor. And so that one's important because lots of times students will have a red cup, you know, and they're kind of just eyeballing it and pouring in the vodka and thinking, okay, it's going to be uh, this is going to be you know one drink. But, you know, halfway up that cup, 16-ounce cup, halfway up that cup is eight ounces. That is eight standard drinks right there. You know, and so having them recognize that is really important. We're teaching them tricks, too. Like, actually, that little rim on the bottom of a, of a red Solo cup, that's actually one ounce. That's one shot. So if you, it looks, it doesn't, because it's spread out, it looks like a very minimal amount of alcohol. Um, 
but teaching them that if you want to have just one drink in your cup, it's just to that bottom lip. Okay, here's just a few others. I won't go through all of them. Um, and so in, in addition to um, teaching them about standard drinks, we talk about uh, alcohol in the body. So how alcohol is absorbed in your body. So alcohol goes down your throat, goes into your stomach, it gets absorbed into your intestines, and then it goes out into your bloodstream. And so this, the way to slow down that process is to just have something in your stomach. You eat a big meal before you drink alcohol, it's gonna slow down that process, which is can be really helpful, especially if you know you're gonna have um, kind of a heavier drinking day. Um, drinking on an empty stomach can get you drunk a lot faster. Talking to them about tolerance, um, and tolerance is really that your body's warning sign that um, you have made a, a fundamental change to your, your internal homeostasis. So your body always wants to maintain homeostasis. So if you um, find that you used to drink two drinks and it made you feel a certain way, and now you drink uh, four drinks, I'm, I'm sorry, now you drink those two drinks and you don't feel anything, but now your body has kind of adapted to that, but that's kind of your new normal. And the best way to get, to get rid of tolerance is to just take a break, take a couple of weeks off, take a month off, and now you drink those two drinks and you can feel that buzz that you, that you want again. There's also environmental tolerance, which is like uh, if you, you know, drink in the same room every night, you might start to develop a tolerance to that environment. So I have my three or four drinks when I'm watching a football game, you know, every Thursday or Sunday night. Um, now I go to the club or the bar and I have three or four drinks and I just feel differently or feeling much more drunk because I'm not just sitting on my couch. Um, so we talk about that. We also talk about mixing alcohol and drugs and how um, cannabis, you know, and, uh, and other drugs, cocaine, meth, they can um, enhance the effects of alcohol um, or they can also, um, they can also uh, mask the effects. So if you are drinking heavily and do uh, and, uh, and engage in stimulant use like cocaine, it might mask those depressant effects of alcohol. You don't recognize how intoxicated you actually are or how impaired you actually are. We debunk myths about sobering up. So is it one of the things we do in, in the groups to ask students, what do you do to sober up when you're too drunk? And they have all kinds of techniques that come up with, but usually related to, you know, eating, getting food into your stomach, showering, jog, you know, exercising, jogging around the block, drinking coffee when you know, the reality is and you say this, you present this information lightly is that the only thing that works is time. So once the alcohol is in your body, in your bloodstream, you can't get out of your bloodstream um, unless you go to the hospital. And so um, telling them, you know, eating after you're already drunk is not going to help absorb the alcohol that's already in your blood. It might help a little bit with some of the alcohol you just drank that's still in your stomach, but it's not going to help that. Showering is just going to make you wet running around is just actually gonna increase your increase your absorption rate because now you're moving your blood faster up through your brain and through your body. Um, and coffee is gonna, is that stimulant that might actually mask some of those effects, but it's um, still just as impaired. So helping them understand that. We talk about blood alcohol concentration, also known as blood alcohol level or BAC. This is the number that represents the percent of your blood that is concentrated with alcohol. So a BAC of 0 0.10 means 0.1% of your bloodstream is made up of alcohol. And we talked to them about specific um, blood alcohol levels. So like 0.02 to 0.04, this is where you're starting to feel relaxed, starting to have that buzz developed. 0.06 is where your cognitive judgment is impaired. We've all heard of 0.08. This is the, the level where, um, where states say you're legally intoxicated, which generally suggests that your motor coordination is quite impaired at this level. And then you get up into like 0 0.01, 0 
point two, where um, there's clear deterioration of cognitive judgment, motor coordination, blackouts can start to occur around 0.15, 0.25. And then at about 0.25 and above, your body hopefully will start to recognize that you have consumed too much and, and basically shut down and help you fall asleep. Um, sleep is all messed up when you, when, you, um, when you drink too much, but I'm not gonna get into that too much, but we do talk to the students about that too. A lot of times when individuals talk about that alcohol helps them sleep, doesn't help them get into that deep REM sleep, kind of gives them really shallow sleep. And in the studies, the way they look at people that fall asleep when they're intoxicated, they just wake up constantly throughout the night and never actually get a full deep sleep. Um, but at this point, two, five, point three, five level, your, your body basically says, no, no more. We're just going to shut down because you're just drinking too much and you're going to drink yourself to death. But if you're drinking really, really quickly, you can actually get through this level really quickly to the point where now you're drinking enough to actually shut your, your body down. And um, it can, there can be a lethal dose of alcohol like around 0 0.45, 0 0.50 and above. And that has implications for um, what I'm going to talk about in a little bit about uh, pre-gaming drinking, which is this really fast-paced, heavy drinking, uh, usually in brief periods of time. So there are many things that affect your blood alcohol level. Um, there are biological differences between men and women, um, but overall, people pro process about one drink an hour. So you have one drink in about an hour, it's gonna be pretty much out of your system. So we give them a personalized blood alcohol chart. You might've gotten this when you get your license in the mail, they do this in California, they get the BAC chart. Um, and the nice thing about the ones that we'll give out is they're actually tailored towards one, your biological sex, whether you're male or female, um, because of those inherent sex differences, as well as your weight, which is another big factor related to blood alcohol level. And so this will tell you, you know, for example, this. This is a male who weighs 185 pounds. Let's say he has three drinks in two hours. Go over here, number of hours, number of drinks, three drinks in two hours, about a 0.03, a 0.028. We do talk to young people about the differences between men and women, between males and females. So for example, there's usually a weight differences, difference between men and women as well. So sorry, males and females as well. So um, let's say 170 pound man and 130 pound woman go out drinking together and they both have five drinks over three hours. So they're drinking the same amount over the same amount of time. Well, the male is going to be at about a 0.06 BAC, which is where that buzz has developed. It's starting to have a little bit of cognitive and motor deterioration, but the female 135, 130 pound female is at a 0.131, which is that level where um, there's definitely some clear deterioration. It's above the legal limit. There's uh, a cognitive, uh, Cognitive and motor coordination are, are quite impaired at that level. All right. So I, I'm trying to set the, you know, the context for this is that, you know, sometimes we're talking to students who are like 18 or 19 years old. Um, and so it was controversial when it came out. It's still a little bit controversial because there's this idea that you're teaching young people to drink. And in many ways, you know, basics and these brief interventions, they are, but they're teaching them to drink in a more responsible way. So recognizing that abstinence may not work for everybody, telling people what to do may not work for everybody. So can we get them to drink in a way to maximize the things that they want to get out of drinking while minimizing all those bad things? Because with motivational interviewing approaches, you actually you will help the individual acknowledge like 
there are things that you like about drinking. I mean, nobody just drinks because they want to feel terrible the next day or that day or get in all sorts of trouble. I mean, there's something that they get out of drinking and it could be a social thing. It can be, it, you know, gets rid of their negative emotions that day, or they think that it helps them sleep or whatever it is. So talking to them about that stuff. But with, with young people, there's, um, there's this, this idea that more could be better. And so people that, that drink, you know, might recognize that, you know, this first drink or two start to feel pretty good, especially if you're already in a good mood and you might think like, I feel pretty good right now. So how could one or two more not make me feel even better? And then you get to that level and you say, I'm feeling really good. So maybe one or two more will make me feel even better than that. And for anybody that's had, you know, more than a couple of drinks, you know, that there is a point where it no longer is only, only good stuff. The bad stuff or the depressant effects start to kick in those, um, you know, uh, cognitive and motor deterioration starts to happen, um, impairments in, in, in judgment. So what researchers have, have identified is what we call this point of diminishing returns, or really the point where you can drink, where you are no longer maximizing those good things. And they've recognized this level as this 0 0.05, 0 0.06, 0 0.04 to 0.06, um, blood alcohol level, which is for most people is about one, one and a half, maybe even two for some bigger people drinks an hour. So what you're doing here is you like those social effects that kick in. You like feel that warm feeling you get. You like feeling excited, stimulated, euphoric. Well, it's right around that 0 0.05, 0 0.06 level or below. And so can you drink in a way to Mac to, to stay within that level or below without going above it? Because after that level is when all the bad stuff starts to happen. Okay. So um, this is a chart here that just shows that, I mean, it, it's pretty dramatic here, but, um, the blood alcohol chart helps students recognize that too. And just the knowledge of this and having them maybe even experiment. So you're somebody that always drinks to a 0 0.15, 0.2. Well, try it, try one drink an hour when you go out next time and see, you know, are you getting all the things that you like out of drinking? So you're meeting people, you're having a good time. Maybe you forgot about that test that you didn't do so well on earlier that day. Um, but, um, you're not experiencing all those negative things that happen. You feel better the next day, you can go for a jog, and that makes you feel good too. So correction of misperceived norms, it, it does seem to be one of the essential pieces of these brief interventions. And we've done some, some work and a lot of other researchers have done work where they've just done this one piece. So this, you know, I talked about basics is a multi-component intervention. Um, the, the norms correction is just a, a single, taking one of those one of those components and just just delivering that and so norms correction is is nice and it really fits well with young people but it can help lots of people as well um, because young people and college students they want to fit in with their peers and so that social com comparison or just fitting in is just very important for them but they're usually wrong and we're all usually wrong about what we think other people are doing we think people are doing way better than us we think people are engaging in um, healthy behaviors, uh, you know, uh, we, we usually overestimate their risky behaviors when we're young. So for a college student, for example, they think that everybody on campus drinks heavily. They think everybody in their dorm drinks a ton and they underestimate their health behaviors. Nobody goes to the gym the next day. You know, everybody sleeps in until noon um, because they, they were all drinking heavily. So underestimating those health behaviors and overestimating those risky behaviors. And so we can target these misperceptions through personalized normative feedback. And this is a very simple way of, of showing it, but 
um, we have these misperceptions about social norms and they actually can influence our own behavior. A ton of research with college students and young adults and adolescents and, and, um, and middle adults as well to show that our misperceptions directly influence our own behavior. So let's say there's an example of a college student, they go out to a party, they have this misperception that everybody drinks a lot. And so I think they think that everybody has 10 drinks when they go out, All right? Everybody at this party is drinking 10 drinks. So they go out to this party and they start to notice because there are people there at the party that are having 10 drinks for sure, but it might be like 10% of them or less. With college students, probably less. And so they start to notice those people and they notice those people because they are loud. You know, they're the ones that are kind of causing a commotion. Um, they're the ones that are calling everybody over to do shots. And so you start to think that those are, that's the norm. You kind of discount, you know, all the other 90%, 80% of people at this party that are actually just kind of taking it pretty easy. And so only focusing on those few people, which then confirms that misperception that you had. Well, then you think, well, I don't want to be the only one who's having just like one. So I'm going to drink a little bit more. Maybe I won't drink 10, but I'm going to try to get up there to try to get where everybody else is just because that's kind of a normative thing. And so these social norms approaches show individuals that, I mean, in, in, a, uh, in an MI type way that actually that's, that's wrong. They're, they're not drinking that much. You're, you're actually, your perceptions are way off. They, they come from you know, they come from the media. Like you watch, when you watch any show nowadays and these, they, they come home and they like grab a, a couple beers from the fridge or um, these are the things that get talked about. I mean, like, especially with, with college students, like you meet up with your friends the next day at, at breakfast and they're not sitting there talking about like the good conversations they had with all the sober people. I mean, they're talking about like what went down at the party and and who was screaming and who was getting in fights and all the you know, wild stuff that happened. So even if you weren't at the party, you're hearing the stories about the party and how much drinking is going on on campus. So it's a misperception. I mean, we know college students drink, but even from like the national level, we know, all right, only you know, 40% of them engaged in binge drinking in the past 30 days. That means there's a lot of students out there that are not drinking at all or drinking uh, quite responsibly or moderately. So you might've seen some of these approaches, they do something like this in California where they will send you a letter in the mail that says, uh, this is not mine, but um, that says, that talks about your energy usage in comparison to your, actually, I wish this was mine. <laughs> uh, it shows your energy uses, usage uh, in comparison to your neighbors. So it says, here's what like efficient neighbors are doing. Here's you. And here's what all your neighbors are doing. So you're actually doing a lot better than your, your neighbors, but it looks like you could be doing like a little bit better because there are some more efficient neighbors that are um, you know, saving more energy than you. In California, we need to do this with, with water because we're having a major drought right now. Um, and so with drinking, you do an assessment and you ask people, how much do you think the group that you're engaged in and the group that you're closest with drinks? So it could be like college students, students in your dorm, your friends. Um, and then how much do you yourself drink? And what you do then is you present how much they think people drink. So this is showing that they, um, this person said that they thought other people drink five drinks on a night when they go out. Um, here's the actual norm, which we've collected, which we presented, you know, on the, on the national level, or if you collected it on a campus, or we've asked your friends, um, they actually drink, you know, only about three drinks when they go out. And then you present that, um, how much they actually themselves drink. So they're able to see a couple of things here. They're able to see like, whoa, it was way off. I, I thought they drank two more drinks than they actually do. 
Um, now I know they only drink a little less than three. And now here's me and look at me. I thought that I drank, you know, um, I thought that I drank uh, way less than other people. Look, I drink pretty much the same. In fact, I might actually drink a little bit more. I mean, this isn't like a very dramatic example, but sometimes people will see that they drink, you know, four or five drinks and most people drink two to three. And they might say, well, wait a minute. I, I thought I was drinking like everybody else. Maybe, maybe I should actually drink a little bit less. So now it works in the opposite direction where they're starting to drink less to match that actual norm. And so here's, here's the example again where this process now we're trying to correct, where now they go out to the party, they've learned the new norm, and they know most people know when to stop. They usually have you know two or three drinks. They usually don't have more than three drinks when they go out. Um, I noticed that most people are having one to three drinks. Only a few people are drinking a lot at this party. So cool, I'll stop at two. I'm good with that. Um, again, a very oversimplified approach, but this is um, basically the, the theory um, that's happening with these personalized normative feedback approaches. It's really neat because it works almost all the time um, across studies, across populations. I'll give you an example, a few examples here. This is, um, so we did some work with college students um, because even within you know, the heavy drinking college student group, there are heavier drinking groups. And so fraternity and sorority members drink more than other students. They know they drink more than other students. So if you were to tell a fraternity member, um, show them the actual norm, say, hey, what do you think people drink on campus? And then say, what do you drink? Show them the actual norm and it's much lower than they, than they thought it was. Well, then they'd say, well, that's because this is all students and all students aren't fraternity members. And, you know, I don't drink like other students, I get it. So we went, actually went into the fraternities um, and presented them with the actual norms of their specific fraternity. So we did this at a, a, a university out here. And um, this was a couple of years ago now, but we had, this is before, probably could do it on cell phones now, but we had those keypads. They're like the ones you used to see on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, where you put them under their seats and there'd be a, you know, an auditorium full of 100 fraternity or sorority members and they'd take out these keypads. And we'd ask them the question up on the screen, how many drinks on average does a typical member of your fraternity drink on a drinking occasion? You know, so like think about the times you drink, uh, the times a, a typical fraternity member within your specific fraternity, how much do they drink per occasion? And then they would type it in and it would go over to the, the sensor and we'd be able to log it. And then we'd ask them, all right, how about you? How much do you actually drink on the days you drink? And then they would type that in there. And then we present them the data, I mean, minutes later on screen, so they couldn't refute it. <laughs> um, and so we'd say, hey, look, here's what you guys said. So it looks like most, you know, pretty much everybody thinks people drink between five and 10 drinks. Um, and actually, you know, 67% of you said that people drink about um, seven to 10 drinks. And then right next to that, we would present the actual norm of the group. Here's what you guys actually said you would drink. And you see it like this. We saw it like this in every fraternity sorority. You see it like this very often, sometimes not as dramatic, but always the case where people will overestimate the drinking behavior of their peers, even within like the hundred people that they're closest with within their fraternity group um, to the point where, I mean, some people even learning that people in their fraternity didn't even drink. They didn't even know about um, So what you see here is there are some heavier drinkers for sure. Um, but in terms of that, you know, 
seven to 10 years, only 20% as opposed to the 67% that they thought. And you see it's much more on the, on the lower end or more, more moderate end, I should say. These are fraternity, um, fraternity members. As another example, we did a study with veterans, which is another um, pretty heavy, heavy drinking group or can be a pretty heavy drinking group. Um, it's also one we wanted to test because um, um, we want so this is a very you know social intervention, but we wanted to see does this work more does this work with individuals who drink for social reasons as well as you know coping type reasons, um, and so we recruited um, we recruited veterans that were were struggling with mental health um, issues, not necessarily mental health disorders, but that had anxiety, depression, PTSD, and we asked them the same questions: How much do you think other we did this um, sex specific how many how much do you think other male veterans drink? How much do you actually drink? And then we present it to them. And I show it on a phone here because we actually did this online. We recruited them online through Facebook and other social media. And we're able to deliver this very brief intervention to them over the phone. Again, just the social norms piece. We didn't do the psycho ed. We didn't do all the other stuff I'm going to talk about um, from these multi-component interventions um, and found small effects. But again, on a public health uh, level, th these can be uh, pretty profound. So what you see here is our control group is the blue. They actually did reduce their drinking. This is baseline. This is a one month follow-up. They reduced their drinking a little bit too. Might've just been an assessment effect. Um, but we also saw that our personalized normative feedback condition, they reduced their drinking to a greater extent. So this is an effect size, uh, an effect size of about a 0.2 to point. Um, five is what we call small effect. Above that, it goes into a medium and then large effects. Um, but overall, you can see that their drinking actually did go down. And what we're doing right now is actually testing, well, what do we see after one month? Do we see that this then, they just start to drink at the same level again? Do they, does the intervention condition meet the control group or do we see sustained effects? My hypothesis is we won't see dramatic sustained effects. We might need some kind of booster, um, but it's interesting to see that this does actually work with both social and coping drinkers. Um, terms of uh, challenging ex alcohol expectancy, so moving away from norms now, this is another piece of these, these brief interventions. And it's something we review with students that you know, expectancies are the beliefs we have about alcohol and how it's gonna help, help us feel, make us feel. And so if we expect alcohol to make us feel a certain way, it can actually help that. You know, so if you're in a good mood and you think I'm going out, going out with my friends tonight, it's going to be a really good night. You know, you might find that you have a really good night. If you're in a really crappy mood and you drink and you think it's going to make you in a worse mood, you know, it probably is going to do that. So there's this kind of this power over, you know, over my, power of mind over physiology. And so helping students understand that, that a lot of these effects and, and really we focus on social effects, but a lot of the effects of social effects of alcohol can be almost explained by these expectancy effects. And the way that we know that is we're actually done experiments to show that. So <clears throat> this is at the University of Washington. So I've actually done a few experiments in here. It looks a little eighties because <laughs> this photo is from the eighties, but um, I, I think it's, it's really neat because it's one of the, the cooler bar labs. And so bar is behavioral alcohol research laboratory. And so what you do is you have students come to this room on campus or the on-campus bar that's built specifically for this. And they can um, order drinks. You know, they can order like 
a, a vodka tonic or a gin and tonic, or they can have a, a beer that's on draft. And you um, can observe them in this space. And it's neat to do interventions or to do these observations here because it'd be really difficult to do if you were out at a really crowded bar. So now you've got you know, 20 to 50 students you know, in your specific room, but also you can, you can observe them. So um, there's microphones up in the ceiling. There's also, you know, they put a camera up here between the Dos Equis sign. The, this is a one-way mirror. So we would be behind them the mirror actually you know, observing them and listening to some conversations. I mean, you get consent for all this too, of course, but um, there is something that the students don't know that's gonna happen. And so what we would do is we would do this in, in several different um, several different ways where students would come in and you say, you're gonna come in and we're gonna do an observational study <clears throat> of uh, individuals who are drinking alcohol. And we would, they would expect to get alcohol. So you're going to get alcohol and they would actually get alcohol. And you see, you know, what you'd expect to see. You'd see students are talkative and usually bring in students that don't know each other. So, you know, at first there's, it's pretty low, like, hey, what's your major? What's, um, where, what dorm do you live in? But then, you know, a couple of alcohols, it starts to start to get more talkative, loud. Some people are playing drinking games. Um, and you do see some of that impaired psychomotor effects. I should mention, you're not getting students drunk. Um, because we have institutional review boards that make sure we, we don't do that. Um, but you can get them to the point where they're starting to feel some of those, um, some of those effects of the, uh, around the, you know, 0.05 to 0.07 level. So then it gets interesting because you have students come in and you tell them that they're going to get alcohol, but then you don't give them alcohol. You give them fake alcohol or, um, give them near beer, which is basically non-alcoholic beer. And there's so many different, you know, non-alcoholic beers out there nowadays that it's really hard to tell the difference. Back in the nineties, when they started doing this, Alan Marlott and them would actually get a bunch of different non-alcoholic beers and mix them together. And they kind of made like a nice, you know, um, hoppy IPA type, uh, one that was very difficult to tell. Um, and then for those people that want mixed drinks, this is actually pretty easy to do. What you do is you would take a, a glass, you know, fill it up with ice. Let's say they wanted a vodka tonic, um, fill it up with tonic water, squeeze, you know, quite a bit of lime in this thing. And then you take alcohol and you put it around the rim of the glass. So dip, dip your finger in alcohol, say the vodka, whatever it is, get it around the rim of the glass. So when the individual drinks it, they can actually feel the burn of the alcohol. They can smell the alcohol. I mean, there were even sometimes where people would, they don't give them a straw, uh, <laughs> where people would actually, you know, pull a drip back and say, wow, this is, this is pretty strong. Um, and so you'd observe these people and what you'd see is you see nearly the same effects that you saw when people thought they were drinking alcohol, you know, the level starts to increase. Maybe people aren't playing beer pong as much as they were, but you definitely see, um, a lot of those social effects. And then you ask people afterwards, like how they felt and how, you know, some people actually say, you know, they, they feel those effects. And we talked a little bit about environmental tolerance before that it's important to do this in a bar type setting, because if we did this in a classroom, it might not work because students are not really used to being drunk in a classroom or intoxicated in a classroom, you know, but when they go to bars, this is typically how they feel. You know, we blast the music, we turn down the lights, you know, so people are starting to yell. Um, and so it's a really interesting thing that you can share with students. And when I was delivering these at the University of Washington, where I was going to grad school, I actually delivered them the, the programs, the basics program in the bar labs. It's really neat because we're able to, to show people. Um, the actual location where these experiments happened. And then we did some, um, we did something for the Discovery Channel where we actually had people come in and you would really hear people say, 
that they were just shocked that they didn't uh, they they didn't get any alcohol. A nice way to do this too is to mix it where you have some people that are drinking and some people that aren't. So you've got people in this group and people in this group together in the same room. Um, then you really start to see a lot of these effects. All right, briefly, just you know, we also we want to test all conditions. So we would do one where uh, a condition where people would expect to get alcohol, they wouldn't get alcohol. These people are kind of boring. They kind of there's some talking, doesn't really go past which, what's your major, where do you live. They're kind of just waiting for the experiment to be over. But a neat condition is you tell people that they're not getting alcohol and you give them alcohol and you see nearly the same effects as this group here. So now very little talking, waiting for the experiment to be over. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, those social effects kick in. And so it's a way to show that it's not <clears throat> the alcohol, it's, you know, the expectancy of that. Start to see people actually experience some of those, um, you know, the, the physiological effects, um, but attributed to something else. Maybe like, oh man, I had a really long day um, and I'm gonna go home and take it out after this. this. This group is the hardest one because you can't just give people alcohol and then release them. The IRB says that you kind of have you have to hang out with them until they go back down to a zero BAC. So these people didn't know they were getting alcohol. Now they've reached a 0.05, 0.06. You're going to hang out with them for about, you know, three or four hours. Okay. So a couple more things I'll get into and I'll, and I'll talk about pre-gaming and then um, I take some questions. We also review protective behavioral strategies. So protective behavioral strategies are things you can do while drinking to help reduce the risks related to, to alcohol use. So some of these things are, are, are pretty obvious, but um, there are, uh, if you, if you, if students do some of these things and do the things that they found to work for them, it can help them alleviate some of those negative consequences. So things like alternating drinks, you know, so there's also a lot of social pressure. So um, having a strategy where, you know, make sure you always have, you know, a cup in your hand, nobody knows what's in your red cup, um, filling up your beer when it's, you know, you take a few sips and then filling it up again and making sure your friend sees it and they're just like, oh, wow, you, you got another one? Um, okay, that's great. I'm not gonna harass you about, about getting another one now. Um, so some of these you know, tricks or even just saying no, I talk to a lot of students and they just say like, I'm fine with just saying no, which is great. Some people that's, that's hard, um, but there's a lot of strategies you can do um, to help you alleviate some of those negative consequences. Um, count your drinks. You know, put extra ice in your mixed drink. Make sure you're only drinking, you know, one standard drink in a mixed drink. Avoiding shots, avoiding playing drinking games. Um, and so, what you do in these in basics or in these brief interventions is to is to help students understand what are the things that work for them, what are the things they might be willing to try um, if they're having trouble saying no or having trouble um, in these high risk situations. You can also help them balance the pros and cons of making a change. So getting them to come up with what does, what does a change look like for you? Like what would drinking less look like for you? And talking with them about the things they like, like what would you be losing? What would you be missing out on? Versus the things that they would be gaining or the cons of, of drinking. And so here's just an example here. So we asked them, get something pretty specific. Behavioral goals is also another big piece of these brief interventions. What would change look like? I don't want to drink on Thursday nights anymore because I always miss my Friday class. What would be the cons of making this change? Drinking's fun, fun, all my friends do it, helps me relax. Okay, what would be the good things about making a change? Well, I won't miss that class. 
Um, I could probably even go to the gym afterwards. I'd feel better. And ultimately, I'm going to get good grades. That's all these other things. And so people can actually see written down. These are the these are the things that I might miss out on. But the things that I'm really going to gain far outweigh those those types of things. It also helps them, you know, figure out like, well, is drinking fun or is it, you know, being with your friends that is fun? And can you use some of those protective strategies we talked about um, to go and be with the people that you want to be with, but not get to the level where you're so intoxicated, um, you're going to miss your, your class the next day or have all kinds of problems. So for some students, it's, um, it, it is going to be helpful to have more than just this one-time brief intervention. And we've seen a lot of efficacy for more in-depth approaches. So things, 12-step programs, motivational enhancement therapy, you know, one-on-one -on -one or repeated group programs, um, cognitive behavioral therapy that incorporates aspects of relapse prevention where you help individuals understand the, um, the risky situations, the risky people, places, situations, uh, feelings that um, trigger them to engage in substance use and you help them find more manageable or healthier ways to, to help alleviate or help uh, manage some of those, those situations. The interventions we, we have now, what I'm talking about is these brief interventions for, um, you know, lots of students at once. And again, on a public health point of view, from a public health perspective, you can really reach a lot of students. You can do that even more so if you are doing these things online. So online programs, text message interventions, or uh, mobile websites, or app-based programs can feature some of these aspects of basics in what we call digital, digital or an mHealth format. And this of course, became much more relevant during the, the pandemic when it was clear that we really needed these telehealth approaches. We really needed these self-health approaches. Um, we have them. Can we deliver them to individuals um, when they need them? Also, you know, college students, it's, as I mentioned, they're most, mostly in pre-contemplation or contemplation. They're not actively seeking out care. So can we deliver programs to students on their phones, on the computer, um, to those who haven't even considered change to help them start to start to consider it. All right, so within the college environment, so we, we know that drinking overall can be pretty heavy for college students, but this is something that, I, that I've gotten into much more recently is, um, is that there are these periods of risk that we know are going to happen. So we know that college students drink a lot more on their 21st birthday. Some people drink, try to drink 21 drinks somehow. Um, they drink more when they go on spring break trips, when they go to Cancun or when they go to um, South Beach or wherever. They also drink you know, more during football games or during those initial weeks on campus. So recognizing that we know that there are these escalation periods for students. I mean, they don't drink a ton during finals week, say, but we know they drink a lot during these periods. Can we have this, what we call event-specific prevention where we target events before they actually occur to prepare them to deal with these. So can we use some of the aspects of basics and deliver that to somebody before their 21st birthday <clears throat> so that then they don't go and drink 21 shots and have to go to the hospital and have a really bad time and are able to remember their birthday and all the fun things they did. Um, so helping them engage in protective strategies, learning you know, the, the norms that most students actually don't drink 21 drinks on their 21st birthday. I mean, very few actually are able to do that. Um, so using some of those basic pieces to to get there and one of those events which is a little more ubiquitous ubiquitous than you know the first week on campus or a football game is called pre-gaming 
And so it's called many different things. We used to call it pre-partying, um, but um, we recognize that pre-gaming is kind of the term that most students understand the best, but it's also been like uh, pre-loading, front-loading, pre-funking is something they called it up in Seattle when I was there, um, which was like drinking before function, so pre-funked, but pre-gaming, drinking before a, a football game, it kind of was born out of this, but it's basically um, drinking alcohol before you go somewhere else where you're very likely going to drink more alcohol, but you might not. So a good example is it was really born out of tailgating behavior. So drinking a lot in the parking lot before you go into the football game because they don't serve alcohol at the football game or because you want to have a nice buzz and you want to be nice and intoxicated before you go um, to this concert or the bar. What we're finding is that this is something that students do, and this is going on for a long time. It's just it finally over the last 15 years or so research that's really highlighting this is that students do this all the time. So they'll do this pregame in their dorm room before they go to their dorm, their friend's dorm room down, down the hall or before they go to the, the fraternity party, wherever it's going to be. So it's not just underage students. It's all students. <clears throat> it's high school students as well. But we are recognizing that pregaming drinking is one of the riskiest drinking behaviors for students because they drink a lot in a very short period of time. So typically, you know, two drinks within like even like a half an hour, you know, or within, you know, an hour period. Um, and so what happens here is that because they're drinking so quickly, that absorption rate, they don't recognizing that they have the level of um, alcohol within their system it hasn't hit them yet. And so they might pound five beers before they go out within an hour and now they're out they're in the car and then they get to their destination and now it all hits them at once because it's finally gotten through their dinner and it's into their bloodstream and so what happens is um, people can experience all kinds of consequences and so we know that on days when when young people when when young adults engage in pre-gaming they're more likely to drink more overall you know later that night um, their blood alcohol levels are about twice as high as on days they don't pregame. And they also are much greater likelihood of experiencing alcohol-related consequences and severe al alcohol-related consequences like blackouts, passing out, and, and injury. Um, this is important because it's, it's very popular. So prevalence rates of pregaming in college student samples, they range from about 50% to 85%. Um, about 40% of all college students will actually engage in past month pre-gaming. So this is, a, you know, um, not just the drinkers, but when you look at the drinkers, it can be upwards of um, 85%. When we look at percentage, you know, the students that do pre-game, they um, pre-game mo more often than not on the days that they actually drink. So they're going to drink, probably going to pre-game. All right, so I'm going to talk a little bit about pre-gaming awareness in college environments or PACE, uh, which is a research study. This is a randomized controlled trial that we've developed with college students specifically geared towards preventing pre-gaming behavior or helping students drink less during pre-gaming with the ultimate goal of drinking less overall. There's been so many studies on, on pre-gaming now that it's it's pretty clear like this, this is bad news. People that do this, which is most students, um, if we can help, if we can prevent the amount that you drink during pre-game, we might be able to actually affect drinking overall. And so um, we developed a mobile-based intervention. Um, these are just some, some screenshots here. You can actually go 
Embrex is the company we worked with. If you want to check out a little bit more about the intervention, you can go there. <clears throat> We're running the randomized control trial right now. We spent a lot of time doing this. We actually finished it right before the pandemic, and we just needed to wait because students weren't on campus. And I don't think there was a lot of pre-gaming going on because they were in their own homes, couldn't leave. So finally they're back on campus. We're testing the intervention. We're doing it right now. So there's kind of um, clickable things you can do inside the app. There's also a narrator that takes you through. We incorporate many of the pieces that I talked about, not all of the pieces I talked about from the larger basics intervention, which again is usually done individually or in groups um, or, on, you know, or on a broad scale on, online, but we, we tailor it only to pre-gaming. So we, we enroll pre-gaming drinkers and we talk about standard drinks during pre-gaming. We talk about expectancies during pre-gaming or protective strategies during pre-gaming. And so uh, they will, this is an example of uh, learning about standard drinks, a psychoid piece. Here's an interactive thing where they actually learn about the bar lab experiment that I, that I shared with you. And then they um, make a plan for some of the protective strategies that they're gonna use that are specific, uh, specific to pre-gaming. There's also the norms piece. So norms specifically tailored towards what you think other people drink during pre-gaming. And we did this at the student level, at the, uh, at the um, sex specific student level. And we tell students where the norms come from so that it helps with believability, but you recognize this before, this is how much they themselves drink, this is how much um, they think others drink, and here's how much they actually drink during pre-gaming. So student can see, well, my perception is way off and I actually drink more than other male students at, at my particular institution. Um, maybe I'll drink a little bit less. We also just give them um, some stats so they can see that, yes, people pregame, but they don't pregame nearly as much as you think they do. And so therefore we're hoping that we can actually change this culture of heavy college drinking, which has been problematic for many, many years by targeting this specific behavior, which we've identified as a really risky behavior. Um, we know that, so I mentioned this before, their pre-gaming and heavy drinking during pre-gaming leads to these global levels of drinking. The intervention targets pre-gaming specifically. So now we're reducing their uh, level during pre-gaming. Therefore, we're hoping to reduce their overall level of consequences. This is just the flow of the study. I was hoping to have some findings to share with you by today, but um, maybe I'll get invited back at some point and I can share uh, the findings. We're actually gonna have them within the next few months. Uh, we're just in the active phase right now. So we're trying to recruit 500 participants who uh, pregame. Uh, we're collecting baseline drinking data and then we're gonna monitor them for two weeks to see what their drinking is like. This is what we're doing right now. And we're noticing that they are pregaming quite frequently. We give them the intervention. We give half of them this, we give half of them pace and we give half of them an attention control condition, just like some very brief psychoed information about general alcohol use. Then we follow them for another two weeks. And then we give them a couple other surveys one month and three months after that. So it's going to be neat because we're going to be able to look and see does their drinking change from those two weeks before the intervention to the two weeks after, but also does their drinking change from that baseline assessment we did to one month and three months later. Cool. Okay, so that's the last thing I wanted to share. This is my contact information, email, Twitter, and also 
um, check out our website if you want. We've got a, a lot of studies going on that you might be interested to hear more about. And I'm always happy to answer questions now, as well as if we don't get to all of them, uh, shoot me an email. Okay, I will, let's see here. Um, one question is uh, state dependent restriction. Do you ever address that in any of um, the programs with students? Um, state dependent restriction, uh, I'm assuming on, on alcohol in certain locations. Um, yes, so I mean, we always will acknowledge, acknowledge that, you know, drinking underage is illegal. And that if you, you know, we talk, when we talk about the consequences, talking about if you are, you know, you, there's a lot of things that can happen to you if you get in trouble for drinking underage, not just in trouble with your school, but also, you know, with, with legal. So it's, it's always acknowledged. Um, and again, you know, really in, encouraging them to um, move towards that abstinence level if, if they can. What about family history? Do you address that as well? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really important one. So in all these studies, we always collect that because that is, you know, a major predictor of how somebody is going to um, respond to these types of interventions. It also has a lot of factors on a lot of um, implications for the physiological effects, you know, tolerance is a big one, or um, some people with a really strong family history of substance use might say they, you know, they, they don't get hangovers or, you know, their tolerance is so high, they can drink a ton and they don't feel the effects. Um, and so that can be really problematic. So we do talk about that. I didn't, I didn't, it's probably, it's more so in the psychoed piece when we're doing it in groups, but if that's something that comes up in an initial assessment with somebody one-on-one, -on -one, um, it's definitely something to talk about. Great. Um, is PACE an evidence-based curriculum? So that's what we're testing right now. So PACE is based on basics, which is an evidence-based curriculum. And so what PACE does, it basically, <laughs> I hate saying basically when I say basics, but it, it takes basics and puts it one online, which has been done and has been evidence-based, but it takes it and it tests it and it, um, and it, and it tests it specifically for pre-gaming. So all the stuff I talked about in terms of expectancies, uh, in terms of protective strategies are now geared towards, hey, let's talk about your pre-game behavior. I mean, of course, like, we do talk about some general alcohol use, but it all kind of comes back down to that. And so by doing this randomized control trial, we will know, hopefully within a couple of weeks, this is a pilot trial I should mention. So it's pretty small. 500 students from one institution will have some preliminary evidence to suggest compared to doing this control condition, we see that college students that receive PACE um, reduce their pre-gaming behavior, um, and overall, they reduce their drink, overall drinking behavior as well as their alcohol-related consequences. If we see that, even these small, um, hoping for moderate effects, but if we even see some small effects, then we will write a grant, try to get money from National Institute or NIAAA to then do this on a much larger scale across a bunch of different institutions um, to see. Then the ultimate hope is maybe we can get this out there and get it um, to get it in the hands of students, you know, outside of a research trial, if we find it's actually really going to be be helpful. Well, okay. Um, so then I'm assuming that it's not uh, once it's available, or will it be available for others to use eventually? Is that the goal? Yep, that's the goal. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times what happens with these research studies is that 
um, you know, with the exception of, of basics, because there is a basics manual. A lot of them just you find your effects in the intervention, and then the intervention goes away, and it's hard to find. I mean, for even you know, personally, like our veteran program that we had, or the the one where we did with the fraternities and the sororities. I mean, you can't access that. We just developed it, used it for the study, and then that's there. And the reason for that is it's done. The reason for that is funding is usually the main issue. And so what we're going to build into this R01, or I'm sorry, into this larger study once we find these preliminary effects is a plan for dissemination where we then build in and NIAAA will actually send us money initially to try to, you know, get some donors or just try to get like a, a decent website up there where we can continually refresh the program if need be, but it would be available for um, anybody that wanted to use it. Um, th there are some programs that have been really helpful uh, in that have been great at developing that model. For example, there's a program for college students called the eChug or the electronic uh, checkup to go, it's called, I think it's just eChug, it's based out of um, San Diego State. And they have received some funding to actually uh, implement their program across universities and universities can contact them and say, hey, we want you, we want to use your program, you know, here's a little bit of money, and then they send the program over and it's accessible to all the students that that need it or want to use it on their campus. Okay, awesome. Um, going back to the state dependent restriction, um, there was a question. It if you address like the where somebody learns something when they're under the influence and then it can only be able to access that skill under the influence. Do you talk about that? Oh, my apologies. I, I misunderstood the state. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's uh, so we so when we first developed. Yeah, I mean, I think, yes, there are. I mean, we want to deliver interventions to students when they are not intoxicated so that they learn these things and they solidify the approaches. But there are some things they might learn when they're under the influence that um, that's that's called state dependent, state dependent learning. So with PACE, we actually originally wanted to deliver the intervention in the moment. So I don't know how much state dependent learning would come into that, but we wanted to use this app to help identify when they started pre-gaming or they let us know and say, okay, I've started pre-gaming, you know, go. And then we would deliver the intervention to them and ask them about like, you know, how much are you drinking now? And like, here's what's happening in your body. And, you know, here's, um, here, don't forget the norms and look around and actually use, you know, the information that we presented with you to help guide how you're going to drink the rest of the night. But reviewers of the, the NIH proposal didn't like that because of that state dependent learning idea. They just said, you're delivering an intervention to people when they're drunk, they're not gonna remember it. There, um, there's gonna be all kinds of complications around that. I'm still not sold on the idea of that we, we can't intervene with people in the moment, especially for something like pre-gaming. I think that's really innovative. I think it's something we just haven't really looked at yet. And so I'm hoping that if we, we do find some effects here, then we go back and we might wanna test another program either delivered like, you know, right before you start pre-gaming or during that first beer or two, you know, I don't know how helpful it's going to be to give people an intervention once they've, you know, gone above that point of diminishing returns and they're in that, you know, 0 0.08, 0 0.09 level. But um, I think it's, it's an empirical question, something that's really interesting to think about.
Well, that wraps up what we have here today for you. Thank you, Dr. Eric Peterson, for all that you've shared. And thank you to those of you that have tuned in. If you are interested in viewing this uh, presentation as a webinar with slides and everything, you can do so on our website at www.yourchoiceprevention.org backslash webinars. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening and have a great day.